Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today is Caitlin Ring Carlson, author of the book Hate Speech. Caitlin, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Marcy. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so I'm really curious about uh, to know a little bit more about your professional educational background. What got you interested in media law and in this particular topic? Great. So I am actually, I have a bachelor's from Clemson in uh, communication, and then I went to the University of Denver for my master's, and I actually worked in PR for a few years, and it was uh, it was really fun for the first few years, and by year six or seven, I was ready to do something different, and I had taken a media law class as part of my master's, and I loved it. I just absolutely loved it, and so I decided to go back and pursue a PhD in media law. And so I got my PhD at the University of Colorado Boulder and then moved out here to Seattle um, to work at Seattle University as an now associate professor. So um, I am just fascinated with media law, communications law. I think it is so interesting to think and talk about how the government can make choices that impact our right to free expression or freedom of the press. Um, I also now, and and what I actually wrote about as my dissertation way back in the day was hate speech on social media. I just think it's so interesting to have these corporations essentially uh, in charge of or being the arbiters of speech. And so they're really in a position to determine what kind of language uh, makes up our public discourse. And I'd be honest, uh, I don't think they're doing a great job. Um, And so that's at least a large part of the catalyst of the book was really wanting to provide people with um, the information they need to make their own decisions and form their own opinion about this issue. Um, As I said in the book, you know, the United States is really different in our approach to dealing with hate speech. And so I think it's important for people to understand how we do it, why we do it, and how that kind of compares to what the rest of the world is doing. Yeah, I mean, this is a, I really appreciated your book for multiple perspectives. One, I love that it's like the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series, because I I really believe that it really is essential knowledge for everybody to really understand what hate speech is um, in relationship to the United States and also globally, which you, you touch on that. Um, and I do teach a media law and ethics class, both graduate and undergrad. Oh, great. And it's, this is a challenging topic because <laughs> how do we, how do we talk about hate speech and what do we talk about it? So, so I'll present you with a very, very easy question. What is hate speech? No. Oh, well, you know, it's funny. It's easy for me to give a definition, but it's not easy for people to agree on that definition. Right. So, right. I would say Me personally, I define hate speech as expression that seeks to malign an individual or a group based on their fixed identity characteristics. So that can be race, ethnicity, uh, gender identity, gender, uh, sexual orientation, age, anything that's an identity characteristic that you really can't change. 
Um, I also believe um, that hate speech is structural. So I think we have evidence historically that hate speech has been used by people in power to maintain their preferred position in the social hierarchy. And so I think when we talk about hate speech, thinking and talking about power and its role in power relationships is really a a key element. Um, What's interesting is, you know, I think a lot of the definitions for hate speech kind of capture that sentiment in terms of, okay, it's maligning people for fixed identity characteristics, but there's not always agreement. You know, a lot of like, for example, international documents, right? So the um, documents from the UN, for example, will talk about incitement to hatred, whereas, you know, Canadian law might list it as something different, whereas the EU law might list it as a, something a little bit different. And so I think the sentiment across these these definitions is generally the same. I think where things get really, really messy is deciding what counts, right? Is this meeting that definition or not? And that's where it's just it's just so subjective, right? That's culturally bound, that's bound by language. There are all these things that really determine whether we think something does or doesn't meet the definition that we've laid out. And that I think is part of what makes, you know, regulating it either with laws or with, you know, for for social media companies, their community standards. I think that's what makes it tricky to really put your finger on, well, what counts and what doesn't? And who do we want deciding what counts and what doesn't? Right. <laughs> I think that's really the, the, the very tricky part because uh, I, I, and I really have to go back to when you uh, mentioned uh, that you believe it's, it's structural, which you mentioned that in the book. And I really appreciate that point because I think we often don't really talk about, I think we do, but we don't really necessarily use that word is, is looking at how this is not an individual thing. It can be, but if we're always looking at the micro, then we're really failing to look at the systematic structure of of oppression of of what hatred really is um as you mentioned like misogyny and and what that really means in terms of you know the gender binaries for example and and you know in, in the greater society and then of course that shifts depending on on who the audience is and who the who the cultural yeah so it, it becomes very it does become very complex as you lay out in the book um so and of course you know in the US with the First Amendment, talk a little bit more about how this really, what you mentioned in the book, but in terms of like hate speech, you know, which fundamentally different than hate crimes. And then we also think about inciting violence, which is also a different definition. So can you kind of contextualize that a little bit more and what the challenge is in relation to the First Amendment? Absolutely. So kind of broad brush strokes in the United States, hate speech, as we've just defined it, is protected by the First Amendment, meaning that it's allowed, right? Um, What we would think of as the use of, for example, racial slurs or epithets, all of that is is protected unless the expression crosses into one of the areas of unprotected speech, which you just mentioned. So incitement to violence, right, or incitement to illegal activity um, comes from a a doctrine from the the Supreme Court, from Brandon the Supreme Court from Brandenburg v. Ohio. And basically what that says is, you know, if expression is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action, and it's likely to produce that action, then it may not be protected or it could be punished, right? We also don't protect threats, right? So if a threat, and again, it's not what we might think of, right? Threats are only unprotected if they're directed to individuals, right? Not groups. 
Um, and if they convey kind of an immediate um, potential harm, bodily harm or death, right? We don't protect what we call fighting words, which we define as those personally abusive epithets that when uttered provoke an immediate violent response. What gets tricky about fighting words, and you probably know this if you're teaching this stuff, right? One, um, when you try to turn the concept of fighting words into a law, it becomes a content-based law, right? And, and in the United States, we really frown upon viewpoint discrimination on the part of the government, right? So if the government wants to create a law that um, regulates content, right, that says this is okay and this isn't, it's got to pass this legal test called strict scrutiny, and that's very difficult to do, right? Strict scrutiny looks at whether the government has a compelling interest, which they define as public health, safety, and welfare. And so according to the government or the judiciary, we really don't think that, you know, protecting people from what we know to be the psychological, the emotional, the now physiological harm that comes with having this kind of language in our public discourse, right? Courts really aren't buying that argument. And so in the past, when people, for example, I talk about in the book, um, college campuses. So back in the 80s, and early 90s, college campuses tried to basically extend the fighting words doctrine to say, OK, we're not going to allow people to use, for example, these these epithets on our campus. And all of those speech codes were essentially struck down. Right. The, the Supreme Court said that's not a reasonable extension of the fighting words doctrine. Um, we also don't protect harassment. But again, unless the use of hate speech is repeated. It's directed at an individual, right? Harassment, in my mind, is much more conduct even than expression. And so, you know, unless hate speech really crosses the line into either incitement, true threats, fighting words, or at times harassment, it's protected by the First Amendment. And that's really different than what most other countries do. Um, and so that's part of what I wanted to, to really help people understand is, okay, we do this differently why? Um, and, and is it worth it? Is it working? Uh, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, you, you kind, you of, kind of start, start going, going into, into, um, you know, the, you know, the, the international, international just solving the problem of hate speech. speech. Mm-hmm. So can we, uh, and, and you talk about Brazil and Canada, South Africa, Japan, Germany, the United States. Um, is there a particular, uh, perhaps a, a country that maybe we can start with Germany? Um, you know, for, Many obvious reasons they have very, very specific laws um, against hate speech. Uh, can you talk a little bit more, more about that and that history and contextualize it, and then we can talk about the other countries? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting you mentioned kind of the the history. Um, countries that have had experience with either genocide or apartheid tend to have uh, much stricter hate speech laws, and obviously... Um, the Holocaust and and the f- reconfiguration of the German constitution that happened after that really set the stage for their modern approach to um, to dealing with the problem of hate speech. So, you know, Germany has criminal laws, right, um, that basically say that hate speech is prohibited, right, and um, they're really talking about, and I mentioned this language earlier, inciting hatred against either a racial or religious group, an ethnic group, right? They're, they're carving out, hey, here's what we're talking about. Um, and one of the things that Germany's law mentions that I think is really interesting when we think about these questions is human dignity. So 
the UN, as we know, was formed after World War II, and they developed the um, Declaration of Human Rights. And the first human right that's listed there um, is a right to human dignity. And so a lot of countries who've reworked their constitution since World War II, Germany included, are really recognizing and, and thinking and talking about this, this notion of human dignity and weighing that against the right to free expression. Here in the United States, we don't really recognize or have laws that account for, either in our constitution or in our statutory laws, that, that really talk about human dignity. And so it gets really tricky, I think, for us when we try to balance various interests that we tend to not think about dignity and, and quite frankly, prioritize um, freedom of expression. One of the things that I think is so interesting about Germany that I just want to mention. So in addition to the criminal code, which prohibits incitement to hatred, hatred, excuse me, they have provisions for civil claims around group defamation. So in the United States, we have defamation libel laws that say if, if you damage my reputation as an individual, I can, you know, potentially sue you for damages for money. Um, but again, that's really not geared towards groups. And in Germany, they allow for group libel, which is an interesting solution or approach. Um, and then the other thing about Germany that probably people maybe have heard about on the news or um, in discussions about how we regulate social media content, it comes up a lot, is this new law called NetsDG. So in 2017, Germany an adopted a law that basically required social media companies to um, remove what in that country is illegal hate speech or face substantial fines. So any social media company with more than 2 million users is, is bound by this law. Um, and, you know, in response, Facebook hired a bunch more content moderators. The other thing they have to do is create these transparency reports that really document um, for the government, what did you leave up? What did you take down? What was that decision-making process? And so a lot of people are looking to Germany because the UN um, and obviously the United States, everybody else's approach is social media companies aren't liable for illegal content on their sites. Section 230 in the United States is, is what establishes that. And so Germany has really kind of flipped the switch and said, well, here we are going to make them liable um, now, obviously, there are concerns about are they taking down what's not illegal hate speech and is this curtailing expression? I mean, none of these, I think, questions have really black and white or cut and dry answers, as I'm sure you've experienced when talking to students about this. But it's an interesting approach. And I think um, Germany is a really good model for or potential model. The other thing I'll mention, and then <laughs> I swear I'll wrap up. Um, Germany still has problems with hate speech, right? All of that is to say, okay, there are these laws, but then the alt-right, like this this far-right group, these neo-Nazis, right, are a serious issue in Germany. And so one of the things I think it's important to think and talk about as we discuss these these various approaches is, does it work? Um, and, and not always is unfortunately the answer. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it, it really is such a, it's such a complex thing. And it really is, you know, to have these discussions are so important. And as you mentioned, you know, uh, countries that have had, you know, like Germany that has, you know, the Holocaust in Rwanda with, with genocide and, you know, ongoing civil wars and the apartheid in, in South Africa. What, and of course there are specific, 
reasons within, you know, this idea that we really just like, as you mentioned that, you know, scholars kind of keep going back to this idea in the United States, we must protect the first amendment and read, you know, freedom of expression and freedom of, of speech. We have to protect it to the nth degree and we just can't remove hate speech because then what is it, what is, what else does that remove? Right. This is kind of the ongoing argument, right. Um, which is, which is problematic in, in, in numerous ways. And then, as you mentioned that the, you know, these countries that have these long kind of um, difficult histories, but why is it that in the U S we, we do have a really a grotesque history with slavery and racism and Jim Crow laws, which, which, you know, even the, you know, the Nazis had turned to, to look at Jim Crow laws as, you know, uh, to kind of develop their own laws. So why is it that you think that it just doesn't click, if you will, here, to really kind of start, you know, having legal, finding a, a, a way in which to eliminate hate speech or be able to regulate it from a legal standpoint, because we do have such a long, dark history related to this. What do you think? Expand more on that. Yeah, I, well, I'm so glad you, you recognize this and acknowledge it. Um, you know, our treatment of Native Americans, our history of slavery, um, it, it is mind-boggling that we haven't kind of had the same kind of reckoning that countries like Germany have had to really understand the role that language played in that process, right? In the book I include, um, the Anti-Defamation League has come out with this great, they call it their pyramid of hate. And it really shows how these varying degrees, I'll say, of hateful expression can build upon one another and lead to bias-motivated violence or genocide. And so, you know, you're right. I think at our base level, we really do have um, this inequality and we've used language to maintain that inequality. Think about all of the horrible images and and words we have, for example, for Native Americans, right? Um, mm-hmm. This caricature, essentially, of, of an entire race. And we just don't seem willing to kind of come to terms with that history. Um, and I wish, I mean, I, gosh, I wish I had a good answer. I think people don't like to experience cognitive dissonance, right? We don't like things right. that make us uncomfortable. And so we shy away from it. I think, you know, what would it like look like if we had real conversations about reparations, if we had real conversations about, like we said, the role of language in kind of maintaining this this structural inequity. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, if I was going to take a guess, I think we continue to live in a white supremacist society, right? And and anything that threatens the dominance of white people, white culture, um, really doesn't gain a lot of traction. So I think if we were to really, again, have that reckoning or acknowledge our, our history, um, it would call into question the validity of <laughs> the dominance of white culture. And, and people aren't comfortable with that at this point. Now, I am hopeful for the future. I do think that um, younger generations we know are much more open to restrictions on expression in order to protect people who come from um, marginalized communities And so I think it's possible in our lifetime um, or in our children's lifetime that we might see 
a shift in in how we deal with this. But at least right now, and I guess the last thing I'll say on this is, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to read, uh, Marianne Franks has this book. She's another scholar. She's got this book, Cult of the Constitution, and she really does talk about how we, gosh, we just hold on so tight to the First and Second Amendments. Um, and we just mm-hmm. seem to prioritize the right to free expression over these these other kind of considerations. And, and in this instance, our, our history, um, what we've seen happen across the world, um, and, and we just don't seem willing to to recognize it. And she really talks about, again, this commitment to the First and Second Amendments. I am always joking with my students. You know, I, I laugh with them of how many times is voting included in the Constitution? And think about the the credence we give that. And yet, you know, free expression is mentioned once um, and, we, and we seem to place it on a pedestal. So, you know, again, I think it does come down to white folks not wanting to really give up any of their power. And, and that's what I think in, including these laws um, in our state laws or at a federal level would require us to do. I agree. And I think when, you know, looking at Isabel Wilkerson's book cast, I don't know if you've read that. It's, um, you know, thinking about that book and she specifically states, we have to start by recognizing that we have, built a country on racism. And until we do that, we just can't really move forward. And it's, and I do, I do fundamentally agree with that. Um, because it really, it comes, you know, when I, when I tell my students about redlining, for example, and really talking about what systematic oppression looks like and what it actually is, you know, from language to infrastructure it's 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 depressing (laughs) it's mind-boggling and it's depressing and and i i really do hope that with you know the younger generation that we can really have you know these greater conversations and also greater change um because really as you mentioned like if until we actually can change that norm and realize that yeah it's it's we have to make individuals uncomfortable and realize that our, our country, the United States has been built on, on, on racist ideologies and practices. So it's, it's really terrifying, right? <laughs> um, I, I appreciate, I actually am, uh, you know, I was born in the U S but my family's Brazilian. Um, and I, I do have Brazilian citizenship. So I appreciate that you have a section here about Brazil and, <clears throat> and you specifically talk about an artist um, who's known as um, Chiririca, uh, his Francisco Everardo Oliveira Silva, um, Visuals Cabelos Dela, the, the look at her hair song. And I listened to it today in, in Portuguese. And it's, it's, even, it's really even more horrifying in Portuguese than it is translated. Oh, interesting. I, interesting. Because the, <laughs> right, well, the translated version talks about her what is it like her body odor caused me to faint. I can't stand her odor. Um, how she, Oh, it also includes, if I remember correctly, a comparison to an animal, which we know, right. Time historically has been part of, right. Just so for your listeners, when hate speech includes comparisons to animals that really serves to dehumanize. And we've seen that, right. So, um, in the Holocaust, Jewish people were referred to as rats. In Rwanda, um, the 
Hutus called the Tutsis, um, what was it, Ingenzi, which is cockroaches. And then even in Myanmar right now, right, we see people getting called dogs. And it again, it may seem more innocuous than like a, a, a racial slur or epithet that we might be familiar with. But really, that's the kind of stuff that serves to dehumanize people and then make violence against them more palatable. So that song, you're right. I'm, I can't believe it's worse in Portuguese than it, it is. is. It is worse it's in Portuguese. So bad, right? Yeah. In the <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. It was horrifying to, to listen to it. I, I listened to it earlier today and I said, wow, this, this actually makes racism sound poetic. And I, and I hate that. I hate saying that sentence, but that's exactly what this song does. And I'm just like, wow. And it was so popular and he was like a one day wonder. And what's even worse is that he's actually, and I don't know if you know this, but he's actually a congressman. Yes, yes I do. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I figured you did. Um, Cause I'm like, he's actually, cause he's been in office for over a decade. Yeah. When I was doing my research, part of the reason it kept cropping up was like this guy, right? Which I think, you know, goes back to what we were saying earlier too. I know at the time he didn't have the same level of power that he might now, but just thinking that somebody who speaks this way and thinks this way is now in a position of power really is telling about kind of what values or norms that that elite class, if you will, is willing to accept. Yes. And, and, and you know, uh, Bolsonaro, the, the, the current president, is, as you mentioned, uh, similar to what Donald Trump did in the U.S. They're very similar in in the sense of of the polarization of the people, the rhetoric that um, has been used to kind of divide the country in the U.S. and in in Brazil. It's really fascinating to me to to see it, even though I'm not there, but it's it's very similar. And I'm I'm fascinated by how that, that is. And I think probably social media has some things to do with that and how, you know, we just want to hang on to certain ideas and just how similar the polarization of the Brazilian people and the American people in relation to to Trump and the ideologies related to him, as well as Bolsonaro and the ideologies that he, you know, because the, the hate is there and the racism's there, the homophobia is there, all of these horrible things are there, but they're giving a massive platform to them. And how can you even, as you mentioned, like how can Brazil even start prosecuting some of these things when the president is is saying it's okay to say this. Exactly. Well, and there's such an example of like, just because a country has laws on the books doesn't mean that they're enforced, right? And then, you know, as you just said, when the top leadership engages in this behavior, and really, I think um, both of these leaders, Trump and, and Bolsonaro, are examples of that, what we think of as like that strongman, authoritarian kind of leader. And I think, you know, I hope that people, um, I do think that a lot of people are smart enough to recognize that this is really a tactic, right? This is a tactic that they are using to um, endear people or get people to vote for them or support them by by culminating or for, by by stoking, if you will, this fear of the other, right? So when Bolsonaro says things about the LGBTQ community or the same way we see with uh, former President Trump talking about immigrants to the country, really, I think that's playing on this fear of, at least in the United States, you know, a, a, a white um, 
sometimes rural, not always, right? Um, kind of person's perspective that, you know, immigrants are threatening my economic security, right? Or I feel threatened by or fearful of changes in the way we understand gender as maybe not a binary, but as something more expansive, right? And so by playing on these fears, using language to play on these fears, right, they're able to kind of cast themselves as this this savior, if you will, right? I won't let this happen. I'll keep you safe. I'll keep these these things from, from hurting you or harming you. Um, and that's simply not true. But again, the harm, I did want to mention as we're talking about this, uh, there's this interesting, and I'm not going to remember the name of the study off the top of my head, but there's some really interesting research coming out of like the Journal of Pediatrics and other places like that, like medical journals, really starting to think and talk about what is the impact that this type of language from right these 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 leaders, right, the the presidents of these countries, having that in our our public discourse, what does that do to young people, right? And we're finding that there really are some substantial health effects. Um, for example, when racism is a part of public discourse that harms children of color, unsurprisingly. And so I just think, you know, again, it's got to be fascinating for you to kind of be able to watch these two things play out so similarly. Um, even though they're they're coming and happening in different cultures, it really, I think, points to, one, it, you know, how much we are all alike and want the same things and and the way that those desires or fears or or what have you are are exploited by these people who just want to you know maintain their position of power. They want to stay in office. They want to continue to be elected, um, and that's really frustrating. It is. <laughs> it is frustrating because it's really allowing. It's just giving hate um, the biggest platform it can have when Absolutely. a world leader talks like that. Absolutely. Well, and it normalizes it. It says to people, "Well, this is okay. This is what." Right. The the literally the most powerful people in the world do this. So, you you know, does that give other folks permission to engage in this kind of language or behavior? And I think that it has. Right. I think we've seen the level of at least, you know, I can only speak to kind of what I experience in U.S. media, but um, the level of vitriol under a Trump presidency increased. Right. Um, and, and I'll be curious to see what happens as we move away from that, is there more, I'll say, civility in our public discourse? I hope so. I really hope so. Me too. And I think it'll be interesting to, to see. And I think the the fear of like the government overreach is will continue, right? Which is why there's like this fierce passion of, you know, protecting First and, and Second Amendments, even though there's sometimes a, a you know, misunderstanding of what, what, the, what the rights are within those amendments, right? Because they are very complex laws. Um, now, you mentioned, for example, you know, big tech companies uh, and, and corporations, and certainly the First Amendment it doesn't uh, doesn't apply to them when we think about content moderation and and, and such. What are your thoughts um, on what they should be doing uh, in the U.S. or or even abroad? Can can you talk a little bit more about the, the private sector and their relationship to hate speech. Yeah. So as, as you said, right, the, the first amendment doesn't apply. And so, um, these tech companies are essentially free with the exception of like places like in places like Germany, where they're saying, Hey, you have to remove illegal hate speech in, in most other places, it's really up to them. And I would say 
There's a couple of things. I mean, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the uh, Facebook whistleblower. Um, we just had someone come out last week um, with, you know, she stole a bunch of these documents uh, from Facebook when she was leaving that really talked about how they have allowed the algorithm to continue to prioritize extreme or controversial content because we know that keeps us on these platforms longer, right? And I think part of what we need across the board is greater media literacy. Like people need to understand that. And and again, I say this as somebody who like, I love Instagram. I like Facebook. Well, Facebook, I don't know. I, I have <laughs> Facebook, I should say, right? It pops up. It'll pop up these memories of like, I saw one the other day that was like, my husband had got me flowers for finishing my dissertation like nine years ago. I'm like, this is why I can't quit you, Facebook, right? You're so good right. at, at, at pulling on my nostalgia, my heartstrings. <laughs> but I say all this as somebody like, I hop on TikTok. I have Twitter. Like I, I like social media and I think there are some really good and fun things about it. Um, and so I'd hate to lose those, but the, the reality is, and I think the thing we need more media literacy around is like, much like most other media companies in our commercial system, their their primary goal is to make money. And so without any kind of, of guardrails or regulation from the government, they're going to make decisions or make choices that maximize profits. And we know that when it comes to a news feed or using algorithms to deliver content, the more extreme the content, the longer we stay on there, they can then charge advertisers for you know, access basically to our eyeballs, if you will, right? And so, you know, I think we've given a lot of power to these these companies to kind of be the arbiters of speech. And I think there are, I guess I worry sometimes that the way that we try or when the government or Congress in particular steps in to try and address this, they're they're using a hammer when what's needle needed is like a needle if that makes sense, right, to try and regulate that they just want to say it's this or that, it's all or nothing. When in reality, when we think about the way other industries are regulated, I think there are some really creative opportunities, whether that's increasing transparency, right? So I mentioned how Germany has these transparency reports, you know, tell us, what did you leave up? What did you take down? How much of this kind of content did you action, right? I think we have to keep in mind that when we're talking about these things, you know, hate speech is still protected, right? And so everything Facebook or Twitter or anybody does, at least in the United States, is really up up to them. Is that how we want to continue to operate or do we want to change that? Um, You know, I, I, I shy away. I get nervous about, you know, thinking that the FCC should start to regulate internet content like it does broadcast because the the reason we we regulate television, broadcast television and radio and for your listeners, that really is only like ABC, NBC, Fox, the stations that you get in your house for free, right, with a digital antenna. It's not cable. It's not Netflix. It's none of that stuff. But the reason we regulate that differently is because of spectrum scarcity. There's not enough room for everybody who wants a station at 107.1 to have one. And so we basically say to the people lucky enough to get licenses, in exchange for that, you need to do some things for us. You have to have children's programming. You can't show smoking, whatever those those rules are. Um, and that doesn't really apply to to the internet or social media. So I think we need creative, nuanced approaches to thinking about how we put some guardrails on. And again, I, I mentioned other industries, right? I can't think of another industry with less with more of an impact and less regulation, right? And and I, I want to be mindful of the fact that, okay, 
you know, Facebook was invented in what, 2006? Like we're only, what, 15 years into this thing? And so much the same way we saw with, let's say, mining or logging or uh, any of these other kind of in- industries, right? We didn't regulate it. Bad things happen and we started to regulate it in some way. And I really think that's kind of the the push point that we're at right now, this crossroads of like, okay, we need to do something, but we also need to proceed with caution because what we don't want and what the First Amendment protects against is government intervention in expression, right? Um, so I wish, I mean, gosh, Marcy, if I had the solution... <laughs> I'd charge for it. No, just kidding. <laughs> but, no, I was just I like, you'd be rich, right? No. Exactly. <laughs> it is nuanced. It isn't easy, right? I and mean, we haven't really, and it's not really the subject of my book, but, you know, I think whenever you talk about this stuff, the the kind of the next thing that comes up is mis- and disinformation, right? And I do think hate speech is a form of that, right? It's, it's saying untrue things about groups of people, but um, we've got all this mis- and disinformation uh, floating around, and I don't know that I trust the government to make decisions about what's true or not true, um, but we collectively need to figure out a way to um, address these issues. I will say it was really interesting. I um, I have a Facebook page for my com law class, and I share stuff both on Twitter and Facebook, um, news stories that relate to communications law. And I went to share something that I had already shared on Twitter and I'd read the article when it popped up on Twitter and I went to share it on Facebook and Facebook said, you haven't opened that article. Do you want to share it? And I thought, well, here you go, right? Or when Twitter does things like labeling, this is not a true statement or this claim is problematic. Um, You know, one of the tricky things about social media is it all looks the same, right? So something from the New York Times or the Washington Post looks the same as, you know, something from my cousin, Mark, who is off his rocker or whatever, right? So I think there are some creative ways potentially to start to say, here is something from a trustworthy source that's accurate information, or when it's hate speech, you know, this is not verified, or they simply take it down. Um, The other place, and then I, I swear I'll stop rambling, but Facebook groups makes me really nervous, right? So um, I think these are these kind of insulated places where, and I'd say the same thing. I think there are parts of Reddit. I think definitely 4chan and 8chan, right? These places that are insulated, I'll say, um, within social media platforms where we just can't see it. And I worry that those are places where people are getting radicalized, where people are seeing these hateful attitudes supported, right? Normalized. Um, and and I don't think there's enough, unfortunately, empirical evidence on the link between what happens in those spaces and then some of the, the radicalization we see, whether that turns into bias-motivated violence or simply in a shifting of, of people's attitudes and behaviors. Um, but, but that stuff makes me really nervous that we've almost created these spaces that are behind closed doors and then said to social media companies, you're not responsible for what happens behind your doors. So that actually brings me to my, my next question. Do you have any suggestions, thoughts, ideas on how to reform Section 230? Oh, my gosh. Again, <laughs> if I have. I'm just giving you like super easy questions. Yeah. Right, exactly. I, I, <laughs> I am somebody, and this will, as you know, right, media law folks, we could literally have a whole conference, we could argue for an entire day (laughs) about the language of 230, right? So I am really a big fan of Danielle Citron, 
her work and her approach where we don't just hand this immunity, if you will, from liability to people that we require them to be good actors, right? So that potentially bad Samaritans who don't engage in a certain level of content moderation, whether that is, you know, following their own rules, whether that is transparency reports, whatever we decide that is, but really somehow distinguishing between who has earned the privilege of immunity, right? Because I do think there are so many situations where, and you might be familiar with, um, I think Carrie Goldberg, she's a victim's rights lawyer. She wrote a book called Nobody's Victim. Um, And she's just incredible. And she basically um, talks about one of her cases, which is a product liability case. So they actually sued saying that the product of, in this case, Grindr, was faulty, right? I used the product how I was supposed to. Um, This comes from the case Grindr v. Herrick. No, Herrick v. Grindr, obviously. Sorry. (laughs) But anyway, this guy, he is on Grindr, right, meeting folks. His ex uses Grindr to send, I think, over a course of eight months, let's say a thousand people to his house and place of work under the auspices of of hooking up with him, right? So this becomes just severe, severe harassment. And he complains to Grindr over 50 times and Grindr does nothing, right? Doesn't eliminate the account, doesn't act, doesn't do anything. And so one of the things that, that she's saying is, well, this product isn't working, right? And so Again, that goes back to kind of my thoughts about a, a good Samaritan. If you, if your product's not working, do you deserve this immunity from liability, right? That we're not all kind of created equal. I also think we might need to reconsider who's a publisher and who's not, right? I think we start talking about news feeds and we thought, start talking about algorithms that determine which news we have access to. You know, does that make you a publisher? I just think we need to revisit. And again, I make it makes me nervous. <laughs> you know, you'll hear these these congressional hearings, and you've got you know, I, I some people I'm sure totally get it and and understand what's going on, but a lot of our um, senators and Congress people are really not technologically savvy and really don't understand kind of the nuance of of this issue, and so I worry that they'll try to you know make these sweeping changes. Um, and in doing so, will create additional problems. I think FOSTA-SESTA is an example of, you know, what you're trying to do is is the right thing, right, to eliminate the use of, of social media platforms for sex trafficking. The way you go about it might have these these inadvertent kind of secondary effects that you you didn't think about during the the lawmaking process. So I just, I hope that they'll rely on experts, um, you know, bring in the Danielle Citrons and the Carrie Goldbergs of the world and let them help craft policy. Scholars have been working on this issue for decades. And so really looking to experts to help guide us and being willing to change, right? I think that's part of what is so frustrating, I think, to some of us is, you know, this law was created in 1996 in response to a handful of cases that happened right before them. We're talking like AOL chat room kind of stuff, right? And so is that the right fit for the kind of information environment we live in today? I don't I don't think so anymore. So, um, and again, all that is to say, it really wouldn't necessarily make a huge difference. Changing Section 230 is not really going to impact hate speech because it's continued to be protected, right? So there is no liability, Facebook or Twitter 
or Snapchat or whoever isn't really on the hook because the expression that we're talking about isn't illegal. Right, right. So then it's it really does come into a, a greater question of what can happen from the constitutional side, from the legal side, as well as from a content moderation side with, because these big tech companies, they have so much power. And I don't, I mean, in 1986, obviously this was so many years before any of social media platforms came about. I don't think that, you know, even, I, I can't imagine that Mark Zuckerberg could imagine what Facebook would have done when he was creating this, you know, as a Harvard student. <laughs> like, it, it's just, you know, so the law definitely didn't foresee that. And I think that's always a challenge with um, constitutional well, looking at the constitution, constitutional law is that you're really, um, you know, you're applying old doctrine to like new technologies. Right. right. And, well, and that's I think, very complex. <laughs> you know, speaking of these technologies, there are things that they're doing or have done or could do that actually work. Right. So I think thinking about things like deplatforming, right, deplatforming works. There's this great study from 2015. I won't remember the name of the authors, but they looked at some particularly hateful subreddits. Um, that were removed, and then they tracked the actual users to see, are they going other places to engage in this kind of vitriolic language or expression? And they weren't, right? They just they just kind of fizzled out. So things like deplatforming, things like shadow banning, which essentially is, you know, reducing the reach of some of these kinds of messages, right? There's nothing that says you have to give the the hateful messages the same kind of exposure as you do to, you know, news stories from reliable news sources, right? I think, you know, considering the anonymity on social media, right? We're, we're all anonymous. And I think that plays a role in kind of what people are comfortable with. There's um, research now that shows we almost engage in this type of like detachment that happens online, right? That that's not the real me. That's like the online me. Um, and so, what might that kind of, of shift look like? You know, the AI, the, the, the algorithms are very, very smart. And, and I've been actually, it's funny that we're talking about this today because I've recently had a lot of conversations and been reading a lot from computer science literature. And it's just fascinating how sophisticated um, the algorithms are, right? So when we, we talk about natural language processing and AI, there's not much they can't do, right? They can take context into account. They have started to understand what's a joke and what's not. I mean, it's it's just fascinating. And so um, I think there's a point at which we question, why aren't they using some, right? If Facebook wanted to tomorrow, they could decide the word, for example, bitch or something is never going to be on Facebook again. They choose not to. So I think that gets back into like, what are these choices and why isn't there accountability for these choices that they're making? I would also point to when it comes to social media regulation, the Santa Clara principles, which I think they're getting revised. They were established in 2018, but they really talk about best practices um, for social media organizations. And they include things like we've talked about transparency reports, uh, making really clear what the community standards are. Um, it's not always easy to tell what's okay and what's not okay. And so just really making that clear to users. So, you know, all that's to say, I think there are some things that we could either ask or require uh, social media companies to do to address this, this problems and kind of related problems. Yeah. And I think it becomes even more complex when we go back to um, cultural context and the kind of access uh, that perhaps people need to have. So like if, you know, certain trigger words, if you were to, to, you know, ban the words such as like breast or vagina, like 
that can actually eliminate a ton of really important content, right? In terms of, you know, uh, just women's health. And, and this has happened in, you know, where in, in certain places where all of a sudden, the, you know, the algorithms, they can be smart and they can also just really not be smart and just take down content where you're like, wait a minute, people are wanting to educate themselves on breast cancer or on cervical cancer. And so it does, um, you know, it does become very um, challenging, but at the same time, these are multi-billion dollar companies with an enormous amount of money and power. So there has to be a greater conversation with numerous experts at the table to say, hey, what what can we do here um, about this, right? And and be able to give access, you know, to good content like medical, you know, scientific content without, you know, quashing, uh, you know, without quashing good content and and getting rid of stuff that just is, you know, harassment or or what have you. But it really does become this kind of giant beast of where do we even begin? Right. Well, and I'm so glad you mentioned. Because I think one of the things that the Facebook whistleblower, I think her name's Frances Hogan, you know, they they have the resources to address this. Hard stop, right? And so when they don't or haven't, um, when you were talking, it reminded me, uh, not in the book, but I've done some research since then. And Facebook only has content moderators working in, let's say, if I had to guess, maybe 50 languages, Right. So things like that, like you could tomorrow hire more human content moderators for XYZ languages and address what's happening. For example, Ethiopia is a place where Facebook is currently being used as part of kind of a, a an ethnic hatred campaign against groups there, right? So you you could do something different. You choose not to. Um, and so that, that I think for a lot of us is the part that's really, really frustrating and, and disheartening. And then same thing on the other side of the coin, when countries like we mentioned, Germany, enact these laws and require social media organizations to step up, if they want access to that market, they do, right? They will do these things in order to play ball. And so I think we need to think carefully about what what we're asking of them, because as you said, they absolutely have the resources to make these changes. Yeah, they they really do. And, and they have the resources to do it within so many different languages and so many different cultural contexts. Um, it would just take it's going to take money to do that <laughs> and more manpower to do that. Just more human, uh, you know, yeah, it's just. Well, like you said, you it. know, some of these where I, I, same thing, like you see all this of like, oh, they'll ban nudity, which includes women's breasts and then breastfeeding pages are, are eliminated or there's actually been some stuff around Black Lives Matter, right? That they, they misread that as, as hate speech when in fact it's, it's far, you know, couldn't be further from it. And, and you're right. I think some of that stuff requires human content moderators. And, you know, that opens up kind of a Pandora's box, just given like the the pay and the working conditions that those folks are operating in. Um, you know, what would it look like for a company like Twitter or Facebook to treat those people as, right, not um, hired, outsourced kind of laborers, but instead as employees of the company and pay them not you know, a living wage, um, we might get a different result if that were the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, content moderates, oh my gosh, that, that is, that is, that is a discussion in and of itself. I know it's horrifying. It's it is horrifying. horrifying. Um, if people are interested, Casey Newton, I think is at, I want to say vice, but again, I could always be, it might be wired. I can't remember, but, uh, 
they're a reporter that does a lot of great work on kind of the insight of what happens. Kate Klonick is another um, person who's done a lot of, she had an, a New Yorker article that really unpacked this. Um, and so if people are interested, I think that's just, it's, it's, it's really frightening kind of how the process of content moderation plays out at these multi-billion dollar companies. It is. I, I agree. And thank you for those suggestions. Um, Cause I think it's, it's, it's good to have this conversation and that's something that needs to be addressed, you know, in and of itself um, to, to, you know, to these individuals need to get, paid more. It needs to be a much, you know, it, we, we go back to like human dignity and talk about a job that just in so many different ways seems to, to really just miss that point yeah, of, of treating individuals with, with the dignity that they deserve when they're looking at this kind of just awful content all day long. Um, now, before we wrap up, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, hate speech on U.S. college campuses, right? As, um, as so many um, of our listeners, I'm sure are professors and teach um, can you talk more about wh- where does that, where does this, uh, th- everything that we're talking about, how does it fit into the U.S., colleges yeah. So colleges, system? I think, are this, these interesting kind of places where a lot of these issues, for better or worse, kind of play out. Um, as you and other com law folks will know, you know, college, public college campuses are essentially traditional public forums, right? So they're quads or they're certain spaces on public campuses that are places that kind of time out of mind we've used for expression. And so it's very difficult. Um, And, you know, when we talk about the First Amendment and government limiting speech, government doesn't just mean Congress. It can mean, right, the president of a university or um, other kind of state actors, if you will, putting limits on expression. And so legally, you know, really colleges can't engage in this this viewpoint discrimination. They can't say, um, hey, yes, absolutely, we can have, oh gosh, I don't know who's a good person, Stacey Abrams, come and talk about voting and democracy and all of these things that we're passionate about. But no, you can't have Ben Shapiro or Milo Yiannopoulos or one of these kind of far-right provocateur folks come, right? They, they just can't engage in that discrimination. And so what happens is, We'll have kind of controversial speakers invited onto campus, and there are, I think, really big questions raised there around, you know, is that how we want to continue to operate, right, in in giving a platform or allowing a, a platform to be given to these extreme kind of viewpoints? Um, I think, again, legally, there's not much that can be done. I think there's more of a moral question at this point about, Yes, I know we are fearful of the government engaging in viewpoint discrimination, um, but there are, again, creative ways, I think, to address this uh, that you don't necessarily have to allow them to. Well, I shouldn't say that because you do right now, but I can imagine a future in which we didn't have to put them in the biggest auditorium and advertise the event, right, that we could maybe give less attention or excitement to these controversial speakers than we would something that the university actually endorses. But again, it's really not right now the place of the university to say yes to this speaker or no to that. I just hope that people recognize the the difficulty or the harm that comes with that framework. Um, and so, you know, in addition to being places where people wrestle with intellectual ideas and controversies, you know, colleges are also places where people live and eat and work. And so, um, it becomes really difficult when we think about, you know, how we address this this issue of whether it's controversial speakers on campus or controversial speech, 
I'm certainly not of the mindset that we should, you know, put the government in charge of deciding what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, but I do think there are ways to, um, again, maybe not highlight the, the, the viewpoints that some of these speakers have. Yeah. And one of the, in the, in this particular chapter, one of the quotes that I really appreciated, it was from uh, Morton Shapiro, the current president of Northwestern mm-hmm. University, where yes. he yes. really makes the point that, you know, well, I'm an economist, not a socialist or psychologist, but those experts tell me that students don't fully embrace uncomfortable learning unless they themselves are comfortable. Yes. I love that. Well, and I think it's, it's hard, I think, okay, so I mentioned controversial speakers and what do we do about that? And there isn't an easy answer given kind of the way the law is set up right now and what our precedents tell us. The other thing that comes up in these conversations are issues like trigger warnings or safe spaces. And there is, I think, a real disdain towards these things, but also a real misunderstanding of what they are. Because I think, you know, I am somebody that will occasionally use a content warning in class. And I hope that people realize that a content warning is never followed by avoiding that topic. It's basically saying, hey, this is coming. I just wanted to let you know, right? So if we're talking about sexual assault, for example, right, that that for some people, and I just want to account for what's the status of my student's mental health? What's their personal experience with this issue? I'm just giving a heads up. Um, but I talk about in the book and you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind just came out with a piece alongside Nadine Strassen, who was head of the ACLU for years, kind of saying, you know, hate speech laws don't work and they're always misused and abused. And I think while there's some some truth to that, I also think that there is a, a fundamental misunderstanding about what people are trying to do when they again, either limit the use of some of this language or um, at least provide a warning to people that some of these these ideas or this language is coming. Um, I think, you know, there's this perception that Generation Z is, is coddled and sensitive, when in reality, I think they're better off than any generation before them at just putting themselves in other people's shoes, right, and having empathy. Um, and, and I just, you know, I don't think that means that we don't tackle difficult or controversial things, but we do it in a respectful way. You know, whenever we talk about hate speech in class, I make clear to my students, you know, we don't have to use hate speech to talk about hate speech, right? And so it's just that recognition of, you know, these words carry weight and they can be harmful to people. And so we just want to be mindful um, about what impact our language is having on one another on our community, on society, kind of writ large. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I think throughout my whole life, I've always disliked the sticks and stones mm. saying, because I feel like it fundamentally undermines the power of language. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just remember just as someone who was just like a, a young kid, I was like, no, actually, that's actually really hurtful. Like bullying right? is hurtful and bullying does not need to be physical at all. So I always thought that was, I mean, I, I understand the sentiment behind it, but that's part of the issue is that we really need to to think about like language is incredibly powerful. Right. And, it and helps us shape our reality, right? That it really yes. plays a role in us determining how we perceive the world. What's good? What's bad? What's right? What's wrong? Right? It, it, it helps shape that. And especially when we amplify language through media, we're shaping how a lot of people see the world. Um, and that goes back, I think, to what we were talking about earlier with Trump and Bolsonaro. When you have this kind of language, kind of, uh, you know, you give it a megaphone, um, 
that can be really, really problematic. And I think we've we've experienced firsthand what that can look and feel like in terms of divisiveness, in terms of kind of vitriol in, in public discourse. Um, and I hope that we're turning the corner. I hope so, too. <laughs> I hope so, too. Uh, now, after this great book that you have uh, now written and published, what's uh, what's next for you? What are you what are you currently working on? Anything you want to oh. share? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I am actually um, part of the team that is taking over for the Sage Media Law textbook. So I'm working on a textbook, which is super fun. Yeah, it's it's neat getting to kind of shape how students impact or address or understand these different issues. Um, I'm also working on an article, literally hoping to finish it today, but um, looking at the use of pronouns in K through 12 schools by, or yeah, by teachers. So a lot of these schools are adopting, you know, reacting to our changing or shifting understanding of gender identity and school districts are adopting policies that require teachers to use students' uh, preferred names and pronouns. And we're seeing some teachers make claims that that violates their right to free expression um, and their right to free exercise of religion. And so a student and I are actually wrapping up a paper that really argues that these are not, uh, this is not protected expression, that when you're, you know, acting as a teacher, you're really executing your role as a state employee and you're talking about a matter of private concern and therefore um, the school is well within their rights to say, hey, you need to be, you, you need to follow the policy or be disciplined um, we're also kind of unpacking, you know, a lot of time religious exceptions are given to people except when they cause harm. And so really unpacking the harm that mis- misgendering or dead naming um, gender nonconforming students can have. So um, almost another form of, of hate speech, but again, maybe perhaps more more subtle, more nuanced, um, but something that this is happening literally right now. So there's like a case in Virginia right now that is challenging one of these laws. And so just want to kind of put our two cents in to, to argue that, no, this, this is not protected expression. Your, your right to free um, expression does not extend to, you know, dead naming or misgendering students. Oh my God. I am fascinated and disturbed by what you're telling me right now. I will will absolutely send you the article once it's Yes, Please, please do. Because this is definitely something that's, uh, wow, that's definitely going to go into discussion in classroom. That's, that's a really fascinating. So thank you for writing that. That, that definitely is something that needs to be talked about. So trying, trying to fight the good fight over here. Yes. Yes. Uh, You certainly are. And and again, thank you so much for joining us, Caitlin. I I really very much appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. It's been so fun chatting with you. Yeah. And uh, I feel like we've, we haven't totally solved the problems of the world, but we've gotten. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This discussion has hopefully made, made it, made that much that, you know, a few steps forward. And that's, that's yeah, really what Yeah, food for thought for folks, at least. I hope. So, awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And thank you to um, our listeners for tuning in. Until next time, everyone. Cheers. <laughs>